stand up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibbony, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. What's going on, people? Uh, this is the Church Politics Podcast. We are live on Facebook today. We've been doing this a little bit uh, during this uh, COVID-19 crisis, and so we're happy to be with you again. As always, it's me, Justin Gibney, president of the Ann Campaign, uh, my partner in uh, Christ, uh, Michael Ware. Uh, and our special guest on the Church Six podcast is uh, Chris Butler, who is a pastor out in uh, Chicago and also a brother who is on our executive team. Uh, we're going to look at some folks as they come in. So comment. We want to uh, give folks a shout out and give people a little bit of time to, to, to join us. Uh, but this is going to be an interesting conversation. Today we will be talking about the Supreme Court's Bostic decision. That's the decision that dealt with uh, LGBTQ rights in the workplace. And we'll also be talking about police reform. As many of you know, police reform has been a huge topic with so many deaths ha- uh, happening. Uh, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and, and so on, uh, George Floyd, and all the things that have gone along with this. We want to give a conversation, kind of speak into uh, what's going on with legislation when it comes to uh, police reform. So again, we're going to give folks a little bit of time to jump on, jump on and then we're going to get into this conversation. Uh, I hope everybody's making through this crisis. I think we've seen that some some numbers jump up as far as infections with COVID-19. So I uh, hope everybody is staying safe and uh, just do what you're asked to do. This is still a very serious situation and we want to make sure that uh, we stay as safe as we can. All right. So let's get to it, guys. Uh, the Bostic decision uh, in a six to three ruling. Uh, the United States Supreme Court held that Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which really prohibits discrimination in the workplace, uh, they said that that, descript- that that prohibition against discrimination in the workplace extended to sexual orientation and gender identity. So it was a major case. Uh, Justice Gorsuch, who is a Trump appointee, wrote the majority opinion, and Judge uh, Justice Kavanaugh wrote one of the dissenting opinions. So I want to just make sure that everybody understands what happened. In short, Title VII of the Civil Rights uh, Act of 1964 says that you cannot discriminate against someone in the workplace based on sex, religion, or race. And what the court said and what the Supreme Court said in this ruling is that sex actually includes, and so they read into sex, sexual orientation and gender identity. So that's the case. That's the holding. And really, to be honest, this sent shockwaves through some of the Christian community, as many believe that this would have a really big and negative impact on religious liberty and on religious institutions. Uh, the, the decision, some would say, uh, could very well end up. Uh, well, I guess you could say it could open up Christian institutions to all kind of discrimination and possibly take federal funding away from uh, institutions like uh, Christian colleges. And so I I would want to say that I I get those concerns. I think some of those concerns are real. Something else we need to talk about that happened through this was the changing definition of sex, uh, which could have major implications on things that weren't really even touched by this case. And so anytime you get a Supreme Court decision on an issue like this, 
there's always going to be really big implications. And, and what we're looking at here is the LGBTQ rights and the implications that that would have on religious freedom. That's what a lot of people are are worried about. But but let, but before everybody gets kind of up in arms, let me mention this. Um, all those concerns are real. There's some other things that are going on here. So before you lose it, listen to this. It's important to know that this case didn't address religious liberty directly. Now, it's an argument that it could have religious liberty implications. I think that's right. But it wasn't di uh, directly addressed. Um, that's not what was before the court. OK, Gorsuch did, in his opinion, mention religious liberty. Specifically, he uh, mentioned RIFRA which is the federal religious liberty statute. And he called this statute a super statute. So basically saying, yes, we've given LGBTQ people rights in the workplace, but I want to mention that we still have this first, you know, have the first amendment and we still have RIFRA, which is the religious freedom uh, restoration act that still plays a role. Now he didn't say what the application would be, but he did mention that as a super statute. Uh, something else to mention in this decision is that the court also rejected the idea that gender and sex were different. And that's a huge piece of the gender identity ideology. It's uh, the, the court basically said that gender and sex are biological. So they're not saying that it's what you kind of what how you feel or what you think. They're saying that is a biological determination. And that's a pretty big distinction to know as well. Also, there are a couple of religious liberty cases the court is about that is the court is going to review in about uh, a month or two, and some expect that the court will solidify religious liberties religious liberty protections through those cases, so that they didn't touch it directly in Bostic, but that they will uh, uh, they will address it directly in these uh, subsequent cases. Uh, that could effectively, and this isn't for sure because you never know what the decision will be or who will write it or how it will be written. But if they were to do that, that could effectively gut the Equality Act, which is something that the AND campaign has talked a lot about and talked about the dangers of the Equality Act, which would be a huge win. We don't know that that's going to happen. We're just this is some things that could be on the horizon. In fact, some people actually say that Justice Roberts, who is the chief justice, might have joined the majority opinion in the Bostic case so that he could choose uh, Gorsuch to actually write the opinion for Bostic, clearing the way to speak, speak clearly on religious liberty in these other decisions. Because if he hadn't joined the majority in the Bostic case, then I think uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg would have been the one to choose the person to write uh, the opinion. So this is this is chess. That's very deep. This is a this is a chess game. So anybody who's on the this side good, that side bad camp, missing a lot of the work that go to these conversations. Sorry about that, guys. I just had to kind of lay the framework and help people understand what this case was about uh, from a legal perspective. Now, let me give you and I'll pass it to the others after this. Now, let me give you the and campaign's general point of view on this issue, which I think is important because we tweeted out something um, basically saying that we supported workplace protections for LGBTQ people. And some folks got, you know, really up in arms. Right. Uh, mostly conservative Christians. Uh, mostly white evangelicals got up in arms and started kind of accusing us of being affirming and all this other stuff. And that doesn't bother me too much. I think it comes to the territory. But I do want to make sure that the AND campaign addresses this very clearly. So so hear me out. Uh, the AND campaign as an organization, as a faith based organization, as a gospel centered organization, we love our LGBTQ neighbors. Uh, we are committed to protecting them in the workplace. 
We're committed to protecting them in housing and from from bullying and so on. And that's a commu commitment we're going to keep. Uh, no one has ever persuasively explained to me why an LGBTQ person who is working for FedEx should fire just because of how they identify or why they should not be able to get a house or lose their housing because of how they identify. I haven't heard a good case for that. I'm open to hear a good case. I seriously doubt someone can make a good case that people should be treated in that manner, especially based on any biblical principle. Um, we believe at the end campaign that you can sincerely love people and disagree with them. We do that all the time. We do it with our families. We do it with other interpersonal relationships. There's no reason that we can't do that in the public square. So let me be clear. The Ann campaign affirms the human dignity of LGBTQ people. We do not affirm the lifestyle. I want to be clear. We affirm the historic Christian sexual ethic. Uh, and that has always been the case. We've never wavered on that. That's where we at. We are. But we will love our neighbors. Uh, we're not one of those groups who tries to be ambiguous about where we stand on theological issues. I, I think that can be a uh, cowardice at, at times. And that's not what we do. Uh, when we apply our biblical theology, it might produce a nuanced result, but that's very different than being ambiguous about your theology. Nuance and ambiguity are different. And so if you didn't know, you should know now where we stand on that issue. We support the Fairness for All Act, which came from youth compromise, where the LGBTQ community and the faith community came together and made a compromise that protected LGBTQ basic civil rights and protected religious liberty. That's possible. The unfortunate thing is that it's often framed as if, as if you have to choose one or the other. We don't believe that's the case. But when we apply our theology and our framework to this conversation, we have to deal with the compassion side of the conversation and the conviction side of the conversation. So the bottom line for us is this. Uh, we never have a perfect policy. Fairness for all, I'll be the first to tell you, is not a perfect policy. But if we're going to err, Right. If we have to choose between things hard and we have to err on one side or the other, we, we will err on the side of loving our neighbor. We would love to have the perfect policy. We don't always have that, but that's where we're going to err. Now, I've given my monologue, brothers, and now I want to kind of pass it to you, you guys, just to, to see what you guys are thinking about this Bostic case, how Christians should think about it, how Christians should handle it. Michael, what, what, what do you think? Yeah, well, right. So, so there's a lot there. Um, you know, on on the case itself, it's important to reading sexual orientation and transgender protections into the sex uh, clause of the Civil Rights Act is different different than adding those classes uh, as separate protections. And so that that's going to have very different impacts. It, it means the the carryover effect will be will be quite different. So that's the first. Second is just to reaffirm the point that you made, Justin, that the the opinion upholds RIFRA and names RIFRA specifically in relation uh, to the case. Now, what's important to mention is that the Equality Act does deal with RIFRA. The way the Equality Act deals with RIFRA is to say RIFRA doesn't apply to these cases. So that's a clear sort of uh, a clear sort of clash on, on approach there that Democrats ought to have to reconcile. We now have a Supreme Court decision, which many of them hailed, saying RIFRA is going to play here when the Democrats' legislative vehicle to address these issues it do doesn't have a nuanced approach to RIFRA. It's, it says RIFRA uh, doesn't, doesn't apply. 
The third thing I'd say is it's just messed up that the court's doing this. It's a it's a complete obfuscation uh, and dereliction of duty by Congress. It should be Congress that should be uh, making laws about this. And, and we've seen with religious freedom, it happened with the contraception mandate. It's happening now that the Supreme Court gives chance after chance for Congress to do its job, but the Supreme Court's patience is only going to last so long. It's been years. It's been over five years since Obergefell, uh, and Congress had not been able to act on extending workplace protections. And so you get the sense the Supreme Court was was just like, we can't accept this patchwork of state laws where you can get fired for being gay in one state, and if you cross the state line, you're safe, and vice versa. And so that's significant. Politically, so, so I should just say, I've been a supporter of ENDA, uh, workplace protections for LGBT, LGBT folks for a long time with religious, proper, reasonable religious exceptions. I'm, I'm comfortable with the outcome of this case as it stands. What's important to recognize, though, is that this is precisely the kind of outcome that many people on the religious right were saying, you need to vote for Trump to avoid this. In, in other words, there's the legal analysis we can give, which is that this case is not a death knell for religious freedom. There's a lot left to go. Politically, Trump didn't make a whole lot of promises to like policy, concrete policy promises to religious conservatives to get their vote. The one he gave was this list of Supreme Court nominees and his promise that he was going to uh, protect religious freedom as he defined it and as his allies defined it. And Gorsuch ruled completely against him. Not only did he rule against him, but now but Trump told David Brody over at CBN that he didn't see it coming. Well, how can you... So, so I just want to, you know, if one of the primary arguments, and, and I don't say this that but, but it's just important to understand. One of the primary arguments is Donald Trump's going to protect religious freedom, but he doesn't see a Supreme Court decision coming from his own nominee in one of the most critical uh, issues related to religious freedom coming, then, then maybe he's not the guy <laughs> to, to protect religious freedom. And so there's this political argument that's happening. It's going to be interesting to see... Uh, how much his campaign tries to play up the religious freedom side of of turning out sort of religious conservatives when when his not when his his own appointment for the Supreme Court uh, ruled in a way that's such a contradiction to the kind of uh, rhetoric and approach that many of his supporters have had to an issue like this, and it's it's going to be a major tension for him. So just a recap, I think legally, you, you know, we the, the the dangerous thing is that. Uh, we have years of litigation ahead of us <laughs> that when religious freedom is in conflict with LGBT rights, unless Congress acts, we have years of litigation, uncertainty for both LGBT people and for religious institutions and religious folks um, uh, in, in the path forward. Politically, it's, it's a, uh, it, it, it really causes a lot of confusion. Sort of things aren't as aren't as clear cut as maybe as maybe they they had been. We'd seen I mentioned Trump, but we've seen a, a list of Republican senators come out now, and with the exception of people like Senator Josh Hawley out of Missouri, uh, quite a few Republicans have said, you know what? Now that the Supreme Court's done what we what we weren't able to do ourselves, we're actually okay with it. So it's going to be interesting to see how the 
how uh, uh, how sort of the uh, political actors process the the outcome of this case. No, absolutely. And I, I know we had a couple of people join. So I just want to give you an update before I pass it to uh, to Chris Butler. We're talking about the Bostic case. And that's where in a six to three uh, ruling, the Supreme Court said that uh, sexual orientation and uh, gender identity are protected under uh, Title seven of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which means you cannot um, discriminate against someone based on uh, race, religion, sex. And they're saying as part of sex, that includes sexual orientation and gender identity. Uh, that was a decision that came out. It, it applies to the workforce. We just discussed how the AND campaign believes that LGBTQ people should be protected in the workforce, should be protected in things uh, like housing. That does not mean that we're affirming, but that does mean that we love our neighbors. And nobody has given me a good argument why if I'm working at, at Burger King and, and somebody identifies as uh, LGBTQ, that they should get fired. Uh, and so that's where we stand. We wanted to be clear about that. And I'll, I'll go ahead and pass it to our brother, Chris Butler, who's looking very excited, by the way, right now. <laughs> Man, it's, uh, it's a great day. Uh, but listen, I, I think a lot is, has been said uh, about, you know, legally and, uh, and politically. Uh, I, I think the, the other piece that we have to look at is kind of uh, culturally and socially, which connects to the, the political conversation. Uh, but I think this moment clarifies for me the need for uh, organizations like the End Campaign um, and what I call the aggressive moderate, right? Um, where we have to be very crystal clear about the things that make us politically moderate are not that we are socially or culturally disengaged so that we don't know what we think, right? Um, it's, it's time for us to be crystal clear about the fact that we affirm the human dignity of all people and that it's really hard in the minds of most people to make an argument for discriminating against somebody uh, and, you know, most areas of employment and housing um, and, and all these ways. Most people don't think that a Christian college should have to put an individual who fundamentally disagrees with, with the foundational principles that that institution is, is, is based upon, that that college should have to put somebody in that institution to teach. And most people think this way. Um, but, but we too easily get bludgeoned into our corners by the most extreme uh, elements of, of an ideological group. And I, I think it's very important in this moment for, uh, for the moderate to be very clear and very aggressive uh, in, in our approach to how we talk about this on the street, right? Because most of us are not going to discuss this uh, in the court. And most of us are not going to discuss this uh, in the context of a, you know, actually working in a presidential campaign. Most of us are going to discuss this on the street at, at our kitchen tables, family gatherings, and our churches, um, and those types of places. And in those rooms, we need to be crystal clear and not allow the most extreme element of whatever ideological group uh, we're engaging with at that time to kind of beat us into one of these corners. Because most people don't think this way. Uh, but but we, 
we don't necessarily speak loudly and clearly about our uh, moderate position. Yeah, no, I think that's that's excellent, Chris. Uh, again, as we said before, a clear theology, a clear biblical theology can end up with a nuanced, right, a nuanced result when it comes to policy and when it comes to culture. And we have to remember that. I think some people are so afraid uh, that they'll be called affirming that you don't want to love somebody because you don't want people. That's the complete wrong way to think about it. But you have you have to love your whether it gets it wrong or not. People are going to get wrong what the end campaign means and what we stand for. But again, we will err on the side of loving our neighbors uh, when it comes to those issues. And that's just where we stand. And, and, and we'll be very clear about that again. And it, here's the, the main issue, I think. And it goes into our book, which is coming out uh, July 21st. If you want to join the Lions team, let us know. We got some some stuff going on about that. But it really does go into compassion and conviction. Right. When we get issues like this, when you're faced with religious liberty on one side, you, you got LGBTQ rights on another side, you may not affirm that behavior. How do you apply the compassion and conviction of Christ to that issue? It's not always a cut, easy answer. Sometimes something you got to think about and, you know, and, and depend and decide what side you're going to err on. And I think we've hit that really strongly today. So, folks, if you didn't hear that whole thing, rewind it back. It's worth hearing. Uh, but we're being very clear about where we stand. We want everybody to know in no uncertain terms what the end campaign is about. So that's the Bostic case. A good conversation about that. The next thing that we got to talk about, though, is police reform. Uh, we know that, man, it's just been a, a hard time for these la this last month, two months uh, with all these um, these murders. Uh, the AND campaign has done our best to respond to that in the most biblical way we can. Uh, we put out a statement, if you haven't seen it, on racialized violence uh, and what we thought is a biblical stance on racialized violence. We think this is a defining moment for uh, the church where the church really needs to speak up about where we stand on racial injustice, where we stand on how we feel about uh, racial minorities. And it's we don't have any time to kind of be ambiguous about that either. And so we put out a statement trying to give some trying to frame the issue and trying to provide some leadership in that uh, in that way. And I think it, it was responded to pretty well uh, after that. I think maybe a week or a week and a half after that, we released action steps to actually involve things that Christians can do. So you go to our website, you find those statements, you'll find ways to get involved in this conversation. But now it's time for legislation. Now I think it's time for the church to come together to get involved in this. No one should be able to say that we don't care. They don't know how we feel or that we're not willing to sacrifice for, for other people. Now is the time for the church to get involved with it. And there's going to be legislation moving. Now, I would say this before we get deep into it. This is a lot of this is going to be local issues when you're dealing with police reform and criminal justice. We talk about it on a national stage and that's OK. And there's some certain things that can be done naturally. A lot of this is going to be a local conversation, what we do on a local level. So Michael, if you would, could you please just give us kind of an update on the federal legislation uh, that's been going back and forth in the in the House and the Senate? Yeah. And so. Right. So there's a lot. Uh, happening. It's a fluid situation, but but here's uh, here's a bit of an overview, and I'll start with sort of the most recent update, which is that uh, Senator Tim Scott was uh, tasked by the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell with drafting a Republican bill called the Justice Act. Uh, this bill uh, incentivizes 
state and local governments with DOJ money to report on use of force and no-knock warrants. It expanded the use of body cameras. Uh, it proposed uh, the implementation of police training on de-escalation tactics. Uh, it created uh, a new curriculum for law enforcement on the history of racism in America. Uh, that bill was voted down today, or more specifically, it, it, it failed to get the 60 votes needed for it to, uh, to get debate in the Senate um, over Democratic objection. Democrats, along with civil rights groups uh, and, and others, uh, basically said it was, it was weak sauce, that it didn't cover... Uh, that it wasn't broad enough, it wasn't bold enough to sort of meet the test of the time. Now, Republicans, uh, including Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina, uh, have uh, have said Democrats should at least come to the table, uh, that they uh, would offer Democrats the ability to vote on uh, at over 20 amendments to improve the bill. And they're saying Democrats are playing politics with this, that they don't want to come to the table. And it has been reported that some civil rights groups are saying that they don't want to act on this until 2021 with a new Congress, potentially a Democratic Senate, because they think that they'll be able to get stronger legislation out of that. And we should, you know, I, I think that's a, that's a good topic to have for discussion with the group. But so that's the Justice Act. In the House, which the Democrats control, they have uh, the, uh, the Justice in Policing Act. This is sort of the Democratic banner bill uh, uh, to, address, uh, to address the issues we've been discussing over the last couple of months in particular. That bill is, is a broader bill. It covers qualified immunity, which the, uh, which the Republican Act in the Senate uh, does not. Uh, it covers... Uh, a ban on racial profiling and a federal use of force standard, which the Republican bill uh, does not. It, it, uh, it also covers a demilitarization of police departments, making it uh, uh, adding limitations to how uh, the federal government can sell basically military grade equipment to state and local law enforcement. Uh, and so uh, uh, it's, a, it's a bigger, more robust bill uh, there are concerns from conservatives that there are some federalism issues. Basically, that it it puts too much it, it, it puts too much say of the federal government into state and local practice. Um, uh, there's also some criticism from the left that the qualified immunity clause is uh, doesn't cover federal uh, uh, law enforcement, only state and local. And so there's some questions around that. It, it looks like that bill will pass the House by the end of this week, but it doesn't really have a future in the Senate, it looks like. And so we're really at loggerheads here. There, there are some people who hope that a moderate group of Democratic senators will uh, enter into ne a negotiating agreement with Tim Scott and Mitch McConnell and try and get something out of the Senate. But there are others who hope that they don't, because the fear is, is that if a narrow bill passes in the Senate, uh, that c Congress won't be able to revisit the issue, that the political will will uh, be wasted. Just a couple more things to mention, which is that there are some other legislative vehicles around qualified immunity that are moving. Uh, uh, well, not moving, but they exist. Uh, uh, 
independent Congressman Justin Amash has a qualified immunity bill with Ayanna Presley, who's a Democrat out of Massachusetts. And then Indiana Senator uh, Braun is working on drafting his own qualified immunity bill, but hasn't been able, he's the only, basically the only Republican in the Senate who wants to address qualified immunity. And so the, the point of uh, doing a moderate version of a quali uh, qualified immunity bill would be that you'd get some more Republican co-sponsors, but if Braun can't get some of his Republican uh, colleagues to join in, then Democrats aren't going to buy into a to a weaker qualified immunity bill than what's in the House Democrats bill or in the Presley and Mosh bill. And so, so, so basically, where we stand right now is where we stand on a lot of things, which which is a polarized, partisan Congress, uh, not able to come together, even with the immense political will uh, that is being expressed in the country right now. Good. Thank you for that overview, brother. Uh, Chris, what are your thoughts just on this, the whole conversation about police reform? I mean, we've, we've even heard defund the police, which doesn't mean defund the police, but then some people say it does mean defund the police and uh, it, it can be confusing. What are your thoughts just in general, man? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's a very important question um, is, is one that, you know, I, I used to organize around in Chicago uh, when, when I was younger and uh, really no progress uh, was made. And, and, and to see uh, that, that this conversation is getting some play uh, now is encouraging. Uh, I, I do think that, um, that, that some of the conversation uh, needs to be reframed, especially uh, by believers. Um, because when I used to organize on, on this issue, what I what I learned, and not just organize, I've learned this living in Chicago as a black man, um, is that this is really a question of culture and human dignity, uh, much more than it is a question of bright lines around specific behaviors. Now, I, I don't disagree with these these. Uh, 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 issues of, of policy and reform. Uh, I, I probably don't agree with abolishing, you know, policing the, the, the most extreme versions of that. I hope not. But the, <laughs> Go ahead. The, the idea of focusing what uh, police, the police forces in this country are actually tasked to do, I think is a human dignity issue when it comes to uh, the actual police officers. I mean, you, you, you get to give somebody a job. I think most of us who've been in the workplace, but any amount of time know how that is. You get a job and then the, the scope continues to grow and grow and grow well beyond, you know, what you initially signed up for. That's a human dignity issue. Uh, but mm -hmm. we focus on these tragedies that, that are just that they're tragic, they're horrible, um, and we don't want to see them happen. But these tragedies are the product of a violent um, culture uh, in, in policing that just does not have enough um, a, a concern for human dignity. And, and this is why, to me, the qualified immunity piece is, is so important. Because what, what I know is in a city like Chicago, uh, only, I think, about 20-something percent of the police force represents like 80-something percent of all police complaints, right? Um, and these complaints that right now can't really follow the police officers, they reflect this culture. I share this story all the time. I was in Hut Park, the neighborhood where I pastored. Uh, there was a car from one of our, our members uh, that, that wouldn't uh, move. We're trying to get the car off the street. 
waiting for the AAA cop shows up, being super aggressive, you know, using foul language, that whole thing. So I'm, I'm in my dress shirt. I got my slacks on. I play my preacher card, right? I'm a pastor of the church up the street. The cop gets more aggressive. And the thing is, that police officer who cannot show respect to a pastor in the neighborhood who's standing there in a dress shirt and slacks, if he comes across 17-year-old Paul McDonald with drugs in his system and a knife in his hand, we can't be surprised when he shoots him 16 times. Uh, and so these pieces of reform, I think, will, will help. But, but one of the things that I think might help the political discourse is to reframe this conversation around something of a, a talk about human dignity, uh, where we're really trying to clean up the culture of policing uh, in this country, and especially in cities like the one where I live and minister, where the problem is, is ridiculously out of control. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's good, Chris. And I think it, you know, it, it puts the, the the black pastor, especially in the low income area, in a tough situation because you see both sides, right? Yeah. You you see the harassment, you see cops that abuse their authority, but then you also know that there are people in these communities, and I think this is missed sometimes, that would love for you to pull police off the street, yeah. right? That that would that would be happy to say, well, because what people don't understand, and people have named what you know what police do and what they don't do, you got to count the deterrence. And what people might do if they knew there were no cops around. And that's what even with a lot of the uh, defund the police or abolish the police, we understand about reforming a lot of reforms that we've heard about, we would agree with. But when you go a little further than that, you're not looking at the deterrence and that not realizing that we're broken people. And there are people in these neighborhoods who would terrorize the neighborhood, who already terrorize the neighborhood and may do so even more if those officers weren't there. We can hold that as a fact and we can understand that there are, are too many police that are abusing their authority and not seeing the human dignity in the communities that they're supposed to be serving. This is where, I, and I'm with you, Chris, this is where the church really needs to be distinctive. We really need to have our, 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 our own clear witness on this because I think I've too many faith, whatever, going all the way to the left, or all the way to the right. I'm not saying you gotta be in the middle. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you gotta be have a distinct witness that's not following behind some of these narratives that, just don't hold water, right? If you really look into the narrative, they don't necessarily align with the facts. They don't al align with the data. Christians have to be bold enough to have their own narrative to say, the culture and police and policing and how they view people needs to change. But let's not look at crime like you know. Let's not look at police like there are no robbers. Uh, like there's nobody out there that could that would make it make it tougher on people. That's the nuance that we just don't see. But I think we need to see the church. Uh, anything else to add, Michael? Well, I just, I just uh, affirm your point that uh, I, I think there's there's this idea out there that if if you really care, then you'll take a certain sort of uh, quarters approach to this issue. That 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 if you really care, you're gonna sort of uh, have tunnel vision on any other sort of uh, factor at play. And th that's not what Karen looks like. <laughs> Karen looks like uh, taking the time to to research and study what's happening. Right? Karen talks about not just treating people as pawns, but actually talking to people in, in places where um, in, in places that would really hurt if police were uh, uh, were not there. Um, and so, uh, I, I, this is such an interesting moment 
in our history. And I'm not just talking about the last couple of months. I'm talking about the rise in civic engagement we've seen over the last four or five years. And it makes me incredibly hopeful. I think the, the caution is um, that uh, civic engagement has to be uh, informed. <laughs> and, and, it, and folks just need to understand that if any of these issues were uh, going to be solved easily, they would have been solved already. Right. Uh, that that these are issues are complex, even if there are glaring injustices at the at the heart of them. Sometimes causing uh, preventing glaring injustices doesn't have the easy solution that you think. Now there are some, I think, in my view, common sense policies that we could we could have that could address uh, s some of the failures of the system. But look, none of this is easy. None of it is sort of. Um, uh, all on one side or the other. And one of the things that we could do as Christians is, is understand the role of, of sin in all of this that we are implicated in, not just, not just those outside of ourselves, um, and that we could bring that humility along with the conviction to overturn injustice uh, at the same time. No, that's that's really good, man. I mean, we're dealing with a lot of stuff. And, and I want to give Chris, you wrote a, an excellent article or a blog post earlier uh, this week about the violence that happened in Chicago, which is another part of of the conversation that we have to have. Tell us a little bit about what happened and uh, why you felt like you wanted to write that article. Yeah. So Father's Day weekend, uh, which is also Juneteenth weekend, um, which should have been a very joyful uh, weekend um, in, in Chicago. And it was the most violent weekend that we've seen in, in Chicago since uh, at least 2012. Uh, over 140 people shot, um, 14 people fatally, uh, three of them children, one of those children, a three-year-old, one of those children sitting in her house. Um, and so, you know, this issue of community violence um, is is one that again is something that that I've worked on for a long time. I think it was 2008 when we launched the um, the Chicago Peace Campaign uh, to deal with the issue of community violence. Um, and and I wanted to write the article because what I saw was so many poor responses to the week. Um, you saw folks, you know, in the police reform community, kind of trying to brush it under the rug, you know. We don't want to talk about that. That's not an issue. That's not the way to respond. Um, you saw, though, a lot of anti-reform people, you know, well, how can we talk about police reform when this has happened? That response. Um, I heard just socially and, and in some of the social media, a lot of people just being so stressed out about it um, that it, it felt like a moment where good and reasonable people might just throw up their hands, right? Because we, we don't want community violence. Like like you were saying, Justin, there are people in our communities, small number, you know, by percent, but enough to really bring this kind of weekend of terror in the community. If, if, a, if a little girl can't sit in her house and watch television without the threat of being shot, then, I mean, that that's about as much, you know, right terror as you can possibly have. So we, we have to, um, you know, fight that, but then we can't partner with the police, right? We, I don't feel safer necessarily yeah. by calling the police right now. Um, and so you felt this sense that a lot of good and reasonable people might just be so overwhelmed and want to give up. And so I, I wanted to 
right to address all of those kind of poor ways to respond, to say that we have to deal with community violence. That doesn't mean that we don't deal with police reform. Uh, you know, we, we have to talk about those things. They're not mutually uh, exclusive. Um, we, we can't get into uh, the whole big issue of blaming, uh, like, like I love what we tweeted today, you know, this party good, this party bad, or even in Chicago, you know, this ideological group good, this ideological group bad. Um, you know, we, we have to deal with with the nuances of this. I mean, I, I've been, you know, kind of going off on some folks who have reached out to me recently about getting out in the streets and, you know, talking to young people, tell them not to write and that kind of thing. I'm like, man, is, is your ideological agenda that taught these kids not to listen to the preacher? Now, now you want me to go tell them to be good. That was what we were trying to do. And you told him that I was out of date, not a touch. So let's bring it all together, deal with all the issues, but but don't give up, right? That's the other thing that I think that the church can uniquely bring uh, to this conversation is the uh, the, the the element of hope uh, that, that we can reach uh, solutions on these things over time. Uh, and then the institutional uh, uh, foundation to fight for the long haul. Uh, So, you know, that's what I wanted to write. No, it was a great article, man. And and rarely have I seen a time when people hold to a negative on the issue, regardless of what the facts say. I mean, the facts could be completely um, opposite and people will just hold on to their narrative. You hold on to the narrative that cops can do no wrong, right? And regardless of what you've seen, regardless of the video, you're going to hold on to that narrative. Oh, you hold on to the narrative that we don't need cops. And our neighbors, look, I live in a low-income area. (laughs) If you talk to my older neighbors, you talk to people in my neighborhood, they would never say that. And so I think a lot of people who are saying that don't live in these areas. I love my neighborhood, but Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm smart enough to know, and I've been there long enough to know that there are issues with it. I've also had the experience of, you know, somebody coming up to our door, trying to get in the door. We call the police officer. We had a police officer come to my wife and say, you moved here. What'd you expect? Right. That's no way to, you know, no way to treat people. So I think we see we see this conversation. It doesn't have to be a both sides thing, but it doesn't have to be as nuanced as re- reality is. And reality is complicated. If you just want to hold on to a narrative because you think it makes your side look right. I hate to admit it to you. The more that you deny the facts to just hold on to your narrative, you're not helping your argument, you're losing credibility. And so what we wanna get to is the truth. And we talk about the truth and love, we talk about justice and moral order. This is a justice and moral order issue and Christians are gonna have to speak very, very clearly into this issue. In which for quite a while we're about to end this episode, I just wanna end with saying this. First of all, guys, I always appreciate uh, being on being on here live with you, being on this podcast with you. and the end campaign is going to keep uh, uh, speaking into the space. We're going to keep leading in this space. So one thing I want you all to watch out for, and hopefully you will be willing to join us and participate in, is our prayer and action justice initiative. In the next uh, couple of weeks, you'll be hearing about this initiative. We are galvanizing the church around the issue of, of, of racial, racialized violence, around the issue of police reform. Because as we said before, this is a defining moment for the church. This is a test about what are we, what do we really believe and what are we willi- really willing to sacrifice for our neighbor? When people say the church isn't involved and we make every excuse that we can find not to go out there, not to be engaged, not to to shake it, shake things up. 
Well, I think we're talking, you know, we're doing exactly what uh, Dr. King was talking about when he wrote from a Birmingham jail. And I've had recent conversations where that's exactly what it sounded like, where we were trying to find ways why we didn't want to put ourselves out there where other people are out in the streets. And a lot of Christians are, too. But while other people are out in the streets, you know, really going in and doing what we can, we have to make sure that we do it in a way that lives up to the standards of doing our father's business. So I want to leave you with that again. It'll be the prayer and action justice initiative. We hope that you'll get involved. We'll be sharing some information on that soon. Thank you for joining the Church Politics Podcast. I hope you learned something. I hope you join us next time. Y'all take care. This is the groove. Tell me, can you handle it? I'm schooled in the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave. I'm unchained. I'm Frederick Douglass with a fame.